This is episode two with Randall Williams. Hello, and welcome to the Creative Strings Podcast. I'm Christian Howes, violinist, educator, and music business entrepreneur. I hope these interviews will inspire you to be creative in your life, in your art, in your business, in every way. So without further ado, let's get to it. Hey, hey, today I'm really excited about this episode with Randall Williams for so many reasons, so many surprises in his journey. A guy who was dedicated to going out and touring and finding a way to do it by himself, Um, just a guy with a guitar, ready to sing, ready to do anything he could to make it work, to build a music career. He found some really resourceful ways to get it done, uh, including living out of his van (laughs) and totally redoing his van to make it into a home. So many interesting things that he did along the way in terms of reinventing himself, in terms of creative partnerships. Although Randall's not a bowed string player, the idea of creative strings, finding a way to make it work, being creative in your business, um, being creative as a musician, and sticking to whatever vision you have of finding your own voice as an artist, Randall just totally embodies this on all these fronts. So I'm really excited uh, about this episode. I do want to give a shout out to our sponsors at the Electric Violin Shop. You can find them at electricviolinshop.com. If you're interested in amplifying string instruments, anything related to the whole process of getting your rig in order, give them a call. Go to the electricviolinshop.com. Phone number's right there. Give them a call. You can ask them about my rig, what I use, of course, I endorse Yamaha and D'Addario products, but Electric Violin Shop, they will just help you with everything you need. Um, whenever I'm in a bind, I give them a call and find out about what are the latest preamps, the latest effects, and all sorts of things that I might need for my rig. They're really the best. And with that, again, I want to invite you to leave comments at the show notes page at christianhouse.com. Tweet it, share it. Tell your friends about it, and uh, let's get into it. Hello, everybody. I'd like to welcome my friend, Randall Williams. Randall, thanks for joining us. This is fun, Chris. I'm glad you reached out. Thank you. Uh, Randall has done some amazing stuff in the last few years. Um, One of the things that I think is the most sensational. He converted some kind of truck into basically <laughs> a live-in tour mobile home down and, by the river. Yeah, and and I was, you know, you were you came you brought it to our house one time and I went out and I saw it and he slept in there and drove it. You drove it on I think some kind of vegetable fuel or something like that. I mean, it was just amazing, but that was sort of epitomized the kind of resourcefulness that you implemented into your touring as a freelance singer songwriter and then but also you leveraged what you were doing with that to do other things in the music business and for a few years i mean you were pretty much like i don't even think you had an apartment or a house so these are you know these are just some of the sort of sensational things about randall um if you want to find him he's at where is randall dot com and that is Randall with two L's R A N D A L L dot com. So where is Randall dot com? Captain 
Always raise their glasses to forever Fear still sparkling in their eyes Ships sail past the first horizon Planes into night so Randall, if you don't mind, I'm going to launch into some questions. Yeah, sure. Could you just give us like a really short rundown of sort of your trajectory as a touring singer-songwriter? Like when did it start? You know, quickly, like give us a rundown, like the broad strokes, like what happened? So I basically started playing guitar when I was probably 16 or so. And the year after I was fronting bands on the campus down at OSU, getting into bars that, you know, under 18 year old kids shouldn't have been in. I was always in the band that had the big X's on the back of our hands or couldn't drink. This is, and, a, um, this is in uh, Columbus, Ohio, Ohio State University, so, right? Yep. Basically from there, I uh, when I took off to college, I sort of did the same thing and I was playing off and on. And one day my mom said, you know, you could probably make a whole lot more money if you just go play guitar for Christmas parties and stuff. So I just started playing and it worked. And so I started playing more and more and then I started teaching and I uh, played in a band. I lived in Japan for a while after um, college and played in a band there for a while. And then after that, when I went back to live in Europe, I, uh, I started playing again. And at some point, it just broke. I, I did the whole conservatory circuit and then let that go because that, was, that wasn't much fun. I did that for classical voice and a little piano and guitar on the side. And at some point years later, this is broad strokes here, but at some point years later, um, after I'd moved to Sweden, I found an agent who would book me into bars. And so I played the, the bar circuit all over Northern Europe. And that worked really well. And I bought a little sailboat, lived out of it, and toured out of it for a while in Europe. And then I got back to the States about 2005. And um, I can tell you more about that story later. But, but it basically started then, this chapter of performing. That Christmas already, I was already on the road, bought my grandma's car and lived in it for a year. And I started doing laps of the country. And then where I had good audience is where I ended up going back to. And so I basically drove all over the country, uh, followed where friends were and where I could get shows. And then uh, went back to the places where the shows went well and where I started gathering bigger audiences and began working it that way. And, and this was, I mean, right now, are you still touring or what are you doing now? My heart left it. It was really odd the way that worked. I stopped really putting energy into touring about a year or so ago. I played five gigs last year and five gigs a year before that. Um, the year before that was probably, you know, 150 gigs a year easy and about 35,000 road miles and a bunch of flights and festivals and the whole deal. It was more that I think I started getting my needs met somewhere else, and so I was just happy to let it go. I've got nothing else on books. I haven't accepted any any gig offers that have come in. I mean, that's that's a fascinating story. I mean, Japan, Europe, touring with your own sailboat in Europe. <laughs> you know, being in the states. You know, coming back to the States yeah. and, and touring under your own power. One of the things I've loved about what you do is that you're in touch with people always talking about your travels. You know, where mm -hmm. where is Randall.com struck mm -hmm. struck me as it really speaks to your brand as sort of a troubadour, like a traveling uh, singer. It's got like, where
where am I now? You know, try to find me. And so I always thought of, you know, where is Randall? Of course. And, and then you would send these newsletters and say, here's where I am today and here's where I'm going. And there'd be pictures and, and really heartfelt stories and, and uh, evocative stories that you'd tell about the places you went and the experiences you had and what it meant to you and the friendships you developed. So I always felt connected to you from that standpoint as like a fan of yours. Like, I think there's so much we can learn from you. So I want to I want to dive into a couple of these uh, questions that, you know, that I know a lot of other touring artists are going to get some takeaways from this. So, so first of all, here's the first question. I mean, how long did it take until you made money when you were touring? I mean, I mean, if you were first touring and, and you could, you could talk about the recent stage in the U S if you want, yeah. or, or you could yeah. talk about Europe, you know, but was it, did you go for free? I mean, what was that like? It always made money and I always figured it out. And I think that may be more of the way that I'm wired as much as anything else. I mean, I was the kid who got all the neighborhood kids to rake the leaves and told them my dad would pay them when, when he got home kind of thing. Um, and so I think I've always sort of had that sort of business sense. But um, the gigs always made money. I have played some crappy gigs. I mean, I've played, you know, I've, play, I've played a couple coffee houses for tips, but they've always made money and they've always been worth it. And they've always led to other things. When I started playing professionally, or I guess started playing for money, I was playing as a 17-year-old in the Paris subway. And at that point, I was making about eight to 10 bucks an hour when minimum wage was below five bucks. And I realized that if I could put my talent out there, I could figure out how I could make more money at it. And so as I started playing events or giving lessons, I started making more money. And then when I came back to the States and started the tour, I mean, the bar gigs obviously made money while they were sending me around Europe to do those. Like my very first step when I came back to the States was to go to live in Boston. And I worked part time as a nanny. Part time, I was a musician trying to figure out how to make it work in Boston. I was playing open mics and I walked into a Sam Ash music store and I said, I'd like to give you a workshop on this partial capo technique. And they said, well, why don't you give corporate a call and, you know, we'll uh, and we'll go from there. So I called and I left a message. I said, hey, I'd like to do these, you know, Kaiser shortcut capo workshops. And Sammy Ash himself calls me back and says, well, that sounds great. Let's do that for 12 stores. And since you work for Kaiser, why don't we get you to uh, to throw some product at it? And a little light bulb went off in my head and I called Kaiser, the capo company. I said, hey, you know, we've got this major retailer who wants to do workshops in 12 of his stores. I think you need to hire me. And they did. And so my very first stint as a professional musician in the United States was also getting paid to travel and do these workshops on behalf of Kaiser Capos. And so I was getting paid to go to every professional conference that I could think of. And at the same time, I began recording and began touring more. And once I had the conferences as sort of a framework, then I was going to the NAM shows in California and Nashville. And I was going to all of the Folk Alliance conferences, folk.org. Very, very cool networking organization for professional functions. Let me ask you to back up for a second, because I mean, that sounds like an amazing, you know, hustle. I mean, that's a great angle. I mean, you leveraged a relationship with 
a manufacturer basically to make everything else happen. I mean, so let me just understand the mechanics of it. In the first place, you got a hold of Sam Ash with this idea that you were going to do workshops in their store. You just called them and said, I want to do this workshop. How did that How did that work? So I found this manufacturer and I said, or I, I went to this retail store in Stockholm, uh, Jam, and I told them that I'd like to do this partial capo workshop. And they said, you know, that's great. We'll pay you in merchandise. And they did. And I gave a couple of those. I gave my first shortcut capo workshops in Stockholm in Swedish. And when I got back to the States, I thought, well, crap, this is something I can do. And so I walked into a retail store and I said, hey, I'd like to do this. And the Sammy calling me back part, I think, was just dumb luck. So it was just you went to the, you, you had this idea about doing workshops on how to use capos. I mean, that to me is like when I heard first heard about this that you were doing capos. I was like, what do you mean you're doing? I mean, this is amazing to me. These are partial capos that only cover some strings, okay. so it's a whole new universe of sound. And you go everywhere from the Candy Rat guys who are playing with five capos on their guitars uh, on the internet to I teach amputees using the same method to play three that chords in thirty seconds. That is okay. That's great. So okay, so you had this this idea about doing a workshop in the retail store, and then obviously the the retail store Sam Ash would promote the workshop, and that would bring people into the store to watch your clinic. Would you and you would ask for a fee to do the clinic, like so maybe like one hundred and fifty dollars to do an hour long clinic. I mean something like this. I mean, well, this is where I really got myself into trouble because I had no idea what I was doing. When Sammy said, "Hey, what kind of fee do you need?" I said, "Ah, you know, I think I could do it for five hundred bucks. And I had no idea that the going rate was nothing. Um, and so when I called Kaiser, and I said, Hey, we've got Sammy who wants to do these workshops. They said, that's great. We'll pay you to go do them. But I basically had accidentally burned my bridge when I told Sammy it was going to be 500 bucks. He's like, this guy has no idea what he's talking about. So Sammy never called me back. But at that point, it was already done with Kaiser. And I began doing workshops in all sorts of other stores. Not hours to question why blood pumps in a vein. So then the way it would work is the manufacturer said, oh, this guy wants to go out and hustle. He knows how to talk about a product. He knows how to get people excited about the product. And so you would go to the, would you actually reach out to the retail store yourself and sell the idea? Or was Kaiser, you know, the manufacturer, were they setting it up for you? Well, they ended up hiring me to do it. So Mr. Kaiser that afternoon, when I when I met with him, basically said, well, how do you want me to pay you? He said, you want me to give you a salary? I said, no, why don't you pay me hourly and let me run around the country and do this and you just pay me for the hours and I'm meaning working for you. paying you hourly. So if you're on the phone calling retailers and trying to set up a workshop, he'll pay you for those hours on the phone? You got it. But what I ended up doing was going to Kaiser's distributors and pitching them on it and they would call stores. Distributors for the manufacturer. Oh, wow. So, so a manufacturer it. has capos, but then the manufacturer has not sales reps, but distributors in different towns. And then these distributors would call up and they'd say, we've got a guy, he wants to do a, you know, he wants to do a thing. And the, and the retailers would say, great. Okay. That's, that's exactly it. And then I also ended up calling folk festivals and offering to sponsor a booth, be a sponsor of the festival, sponsor songwriting contests, and give all the songwriters these shortcuts. And capos. so that way you're getting um, you're getting attention for the capos. You're sponsoring contests, just just different ways of getting publicity for the product. Yep, and I would also go, like I said, to uh, to the Folk Alliance conferences where I could have a booth. And this is what was interesting at the time is because Kaiser lost interest in consigning me the capos. 
So originally the plan was they would give me the capos, I'd go sell them, and then the money that I made would become my salary. Well, eventually at some point they wanted to make me a distributor. So Kaiser began selling me the capos at a distributor price, and I began selling them at a retail price. So I would go to an event, and they'd pay me to be there, and then I would get gigs, which would pay me. I would teach lessons and workshops, which would pay me. And then I'd sell these capos, which would pay me. So my colleagues were going to these conferences and paying about 2000 bucks for the hotel room and their publicity costs and all of that stuff. And I'd be getting paid 2000 bucks a weekend just to be there and book gigs and do the promotion work for Kaiser. up just a little bit more because the Folk Alliance conference, people may not know what that is. I mean, it's a booking conference. It's one of the it's one of the less expensive booking conferences to attend. I mean, if, if you're into folk music, then you really yeah. need to go to the Folk Alliance. And it doesn't cost too much money to get there. Um, but you can basically purchase a booth and a lot of buyers will come and you can try to showcase for them and these sorts of things, right? It's just kind of a show. You've got it. And it's super friendly. It's a great community, folk.org. And there are regional conferences all over. And and there are uh, there are yearly conferences so, in Kansas. So you know, it's amazing to me how many artists don't even realize that these conferences exist. But if you do folk music, I think you know a good recommendation is go to the conference, spend as little money as you can, just do a day pass or something, see what it's about, and then sort yep. of start to develop a plan for how you're going to work it every year. That's ex- that's exactly it. If you're serious about working it, that's a good thing. And if you're working regionally, a regional conference is better. If you're working nationally or internationally, right, right, right. the big conference so, is better. So this is amazing. So you you have all these different streams of income. You were booking all the dates yourself. I mean, you were you were coordinating all these things. When you first started booking dates, I mean, how did you do it? Like, how do you – you must have a strategy now if you get on the phone and you're going to book a club. Like, how do you do that, that whole process? Christian, originally I just sort of fell into it. I mean, when I started meeting – buyers. And when I started having dates, it was people who were expressing interest all over the place. And I said yes to everybody. And then I just routed them as best I could. Um, So because I had an interesting shtick already, and I had five conferences, six actually, if you include NAM, I had all the Folk Alliance regionals plus the two NAM shows. So I already knew that in the fall, I was going to be out east. And in in January, I was going to be in California. And in July, I was going to be in Tennessee. And so I had all those dates. And so I would drive or fly, mostly driving in the beginning, between all the conferences. So then I had a yearly schedule already set up. And then I just booked gigs on my way to get there. And I would route them by way of friends' houses. And then if I didn't have or there was a hole someplace, well, I'd go get on the phone. And so make it sounds calls to me like you're always looking for the you know efficiency, like ways to save money. Like you're going to travel to one place and do as many things in that one place as you can. Or you know that you're traveling to a certain place, so then you're going to wait until that time and sort of strategically build touring stuff you know, around that so you save you know, travel costs. But I'm wondering like way before all this, like when you just first started booking and people didn't know who you were, how do you pick up the phone and say, I'm a guy with a guitar, give me a gig? I mean, how do you, how did you do that? And would people pay you? You don't do it. It's because you don't do it that way. 
It's because if I were to call and say, hey, I'm a guy with a guitar, give me a gig, it would never work. I would call, for example, music stores and say, hey, I'd love to do this workshop for you and we're going to throw a bunch of product at it. It'd be a a small folk festival and I'd say, hey, I would love to sponsor your folk festival and give you some advertising money and buy a booth and oh, by the way, I'd love to give you this free workshop. And then I wasn't a guy with a guitar, I was a guy who was representing a, a company that they wanted to do business with. Rochester, New York, first time at Caravan. But if at that folk festival, would you also perform a set? Absolutely. If they'd give it to me, I'd perform it. I'd perform during the workshop and I'd play for all the campfires and I'd get gigs out of that. So I find that getting gigs always came from personal contacts. It was almost never a cold call to a venue and, that would make but it But if happen. you played that, so you call a folk festival and you say, hey, look, I'm an advertiser and I'm interested in advertising, buying a booth. You know, basically you approach them not as a seller, but as a buyer. So you're automatically, they're starting to pay attention because you're talking about giving them money and then at that point they start to think oh what can we do for this guy so maybe they throw you a slot but then do they pay you to perform a slot i mean in some cases in some cases festivals have yep and in some cases not but it didn't matter because if you're in front of a couple thousand people whether you're getting paid or not you're going to make a bunch of money off of it i mean i remember at one point i flew across the country to play two songs and i thought it was really dumb because i was only going to be there for the afternoon uh but i made 1200 bucks in merch sales and it turns out I won the contest I was in and that put So this is a folk festival. Tour. How do you sell them on the idea of doing a workshop? So it's like a is it like a weekend like 3 day thing and everybody's outside and you're like, "Hey, I'll give a workshop for amateur musicians that are there, that kind of thing." Yeah, a lot of the performer festivals have have workshops. So your Kerrville, your Kerrville, Falcon Ridge, Strawberry, a lot of these guys have workshops. If you're talking Rocky Mountain, you've got a song school attached to it. Sisters Folk Festival's got a song school attached to it, Kate Wolf, that kind of stuff. But uh, some of the bigger folk festivals, Newport, Bonnaroo, for example, not a lot of workshops going to on. To me, that's incredibly an inspiring story. But but still, I want you to go way back to before whenever this was happening. There must have been a starting point when you were just a guy with a guitar that wanted to go out and just play gigs at clubs or house concerts or festivals. Did that ever happen when you, before you were doing all these separate angles with different partners? Was there ever just, hey, I'm just a guy with a guitar, I want to play a gig? Not really. I mean, it would go one or, you know, one off that would go. But if you're just a guy with a guitar and you go play a gig, well, great, you've got a gig and you've got some money from somebody who, you know, from folks who dropped some money in a tip jar. You know, nobody paid at the door to see you if they didn't know who you were and you didn't have much of a following. And certainly if you didn't have any CDs to sell, you weren't making any money off the gig. You know, I, there were very, very few of those gigs before people knew who I was. That's interesting. And and how do you sell product? I mean, you know, because I know a lot of people that go to a gig and they and they perform and nobody buys CDs. So do you have some scripted ways or some sort of selling from the stage techniques that you could share? You're listening for what they want. And if they identify with your music and want to take it home, ultimately, that's what's going to get you home. If not, they're not going to buy it, regardless of how you pitch. I mean, I, I, Derek Sivers posted something a couple of years ago about giving people the line of, you know, this is really important to me and I put a lot of blood, sweat and tears into it. And I really want you to take it home. And so I'm really comfortable with you paying me whatever you like for it. 
And I think that's probably the best approach, honestly, because any more, I mean, people are happy to pay for a 15 or $20 CD, um, but the reality is they can get it anywhere and they can stream it anywhere and a table full of people can buy one CD and all rip it and amongst what, themselves. Well, I agree with that. Yeah, Go ahead. Sorry. No. So I'm, I'm, I'm happy for people to pay what they want for CDs at shows. So that, that was work. your line, basically. Hey, thanks everybody for listening to me. And if you enjoyed my music, you know, I just want you to know I've got this CD and I put a lot of effort into it and it would mean a, it would mean a lot to me if you if you well, bought that, it and you could pay me whatever you can afford. Yeah, I mean that was that was certainly one approach and not for the first couple of years I wasn't doing that. For the first couple of years it was a straight up $15 CD and I had three or four of them that I was selling and I was making more. But I also had capos that I sold and I also sold lessons because I would have lessons with people before and after the shows. And then as I traveled to different countries, I would sell merchandise from those countries. I sold some shirts that I bought in the Caribbean or journals and cards that I bought in India, for example, and those would go like like hotcakes. And then I'd get promos and stuff that I could give away. And so I had a keyboard case, a full-size 88-key keyboard case that was full of merchandise. And I wrote a book later, and so the book was writing in there, and I would read from the book in my shows. And so when you came to my merch table... You had capos, you had free promotional CDs, you had several different CDs of mine, there were DVDs there to buy, there were shirts, there were cards. At some point I got involved with jamplay.com and started giving people free online lessons that I would get an affiliate cut from. You know, and at one point I, I came really close to retiring on the affiliate cut from that deal. Ride this one around, 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 another round, around us. Now, two things I want to ask you about selling merchandise. First of all, if you've got four or five or six products and services, and you, you know you got people, it's like, well, am I going to sell them a lesson? Am I going to sell them a T-shirt, a three-CD package? Am I, you know, am I going to try to get a show out of them? You know, how do you deal with that dilemma yourself personally? Like just having so many different products, it's like, is there is there a point at which you have too many products? I mean, uh, you know, I, I did have colleagues who I would play shows with them, and they would have one T-shirt and two CDs available. And they had a really simple pitch. For me, I always had a sieve and you could come, you could show up at any level. I could give you, I would give you free stuff. I would give you, you know, a five or $10 something or a $25 something or a show or a workshop or, you know, it's, I had, I had things at, at lots of different price points. And that, that worked well for me. What about now that everything's digital? So for example, a lot of times what I'll do is I've got books and I've got CDs and video lessons and all the, but they're all in digital form. So I'll even do, I don't even necessarily buy these download cards. I'll just tell people at a show, Hey, if you sign my email list, you know, especially if it's a workshop, if you sign my email list, I'll give you, you know, one free ebook, you know, maybe it's the electric violin training kit or whatever, you know, and then, but I'll say, but if you buy a CD, then you get these three other books for free, for example, you know, and then so people are like, oh, that's a great deal. If I buy the CD, I'll get a couple, couple books for free. And I used to hold raffles where I would pass raffle tickets around and get everybody's name and email and the winner of the raffle got something from the merch table. And then I would write them a nice note when I got home from the gig, thanking them for the show and saying, hey, I'd love to add you for the mailing list. If you'd rather opt out, just give me a heads up and I'll keep in touch. And I don't think you should underestimate what it means to get somebody buying in on your email list because then you get an opportunity to build a relationship. Whoever would have known what another year would bring. 
like learning to play banjo or finally going to Mexico or falling in love and all those sweet little things. Have you met people that just have a hard time selling? Or did you ever feel like, oh, I don't want to ask people to buy my CD or I don't want to pitch that they can buy the the capo or, you know, pitch? I mean, how did you personally deal with it? I never had a hard time pitching because I never felt attached to it. I think it's when you feel really attached to it that you have a harder time pitching. For example, I've got a colleague who was really living just gig to gig for a long time, and he was really hungry. And when he pitched you something, he really needed you to say yes to that because he needed the money, otherwise he was in trouble. And so he was really attached to it. But if I have 14 things to sell and the cheapest price point is zero, and I can say, here, try a week of free lessons for nothing and just hand it to somebody and smile at them, there's no barrier to entry. They don't feel like I'm having to pressure them for a sale because I want to give them what they want. If they don't want it, then you know we'll let it go. That's great. That's really great. So having these free things that basically asking, having the ability to ask someone just for an opt-in or or giving them a free trial really does make a difference. And well, it sounds like you didn't need it though. You weren't desperate. I didn't ever feel desperate. This machine started making money quickly and I was never really close to the wire. And then I did another really cool project several years ago. I got involved with an orchestra in Michigan, and we decided to do a cycle of songs based on the novel Einstein's Dreams. I wrote these songs based on the novel, and my friend and colleague uh, orchestrated them, and we premiered it at the State Theater in Michigan in 2011. And it was incredible. It was the author came out, he did some readings, we did this orchestral thing. And so then when I showed up at gigs, I had an orchestral CD, I had a folk CD, I mean the orchestral double CD, I had the Einstein's Dreams book, I had my book, I had my other CDs, you know, and I I sort of had this fairly large machine, plus I could call libraries for bookings, colleges for bookings, etc. It's incredible. I mean, one of the things I keep taking from what you did is that you had all these various sources of revenue. You know, you were doing workshops, you were in touch with a manufacturer, you were in touch with distributors, festivals, really looking for ways that it could be a win-win so that you're generating revenue for these other partners, whether they're whether they're a presenter, a manufacturer, a distributor. And you had all these different sort of ancillary forms of income that you're constantly trying to pile on top of each other. And you said it took off right away. But but what if you didn't have all that? I mean, do you think that there's a way that if someone's pitching, they can still feel that confidence, that lack of desperation? Can they put that on? Or maybe another way to ask you this question is like, what are the mistakes you see other artists making in terms of how they're pitching, you know, how they're putting together their tours? Why are they failing? I mean, obviously they weren't doing what you were doing right, but are there things that you think that you could they could do that would be simple fixes? Well, the biggest piece is having an accurate sense of how you're perceived. Wow. And a really accurate sense of where you are in the food chain. Wow. You're not John Mayer. Yeah. I mean, you, you Christian, happen to be. No, no, no. No, 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 I'm serious. I'm serious. You can show up and be like, actually, I will kill this venue. You just give me an audience and I will kill them. But most people aren't that. 
And so these songwriters show up and they're pretty excited about what it is they're able to do. And they're like, hey, great, I'm going to be the greatest thing since sliced bread. And it's not true. And so you've got to show up. And ultimately, the downfall for me was feeling like I was over promoting because somebody who's a fantastic talent is going to have a better balance of promoting themselves and letting people come to them because more people will come to them because they're attracted to what they do. In my case, I was 80% promotion and 20% sort of attract. So I was pushing, pushing, pushing all the time. Because I think I'm good, but I'm not great, you know? I mean, I did some really cool stuff, but I'm not fantastic, you know? Nobody goes, I mean, well, a few people go, wow, but not most people don't go, wow. You know, you get on the fiddle and people go, wow. And so that's where the punch comes from. And so I think unless you've really got that wow and you really, really are fantastically good, I mean, as, as Seth Godin would say, you're a purple cow because somebody's going to drive past and be like, wow, that was a purple cow. And they're going to call their friends and be like, I just saw a purple cow. Hmm. They're not like that with me. I mean, a little bit, but not a lot. But that's interesting. I mean, first of all, you know, I mean, I think there's a lot of ways we can talk about that. You know, I appreciate what you said about, you know, I can impress people on the fiddle and stuff. But at the same time, I realize, like, it's not the same as being a vocalist. I'm never going to play a stadium like Mariah Carey. I mean, it's just not, you know, I'm never going to be Harry Connick Jr. I'm a jazz violin player. There's, There's limits and there's a framework in which some people will appreciate that. But I think that it's much easier to reach people with vocals. You know, it's much easier in some ways to reach people on a literary level. So I think you and I are the same in some ways that we're sort of humble in in having a realism. I don't think that I'm going to knock everyone out. I think I'm going to knock, you know, 5% of the people out. And I think you probably feel the same way about yourself. Like you, you sort of have this realistic sense, like there's a lot of great people out there, but you and I are both the same in the fact that we feel, well, we just have to keep the pedal to the metal and constantly get out there because because yep. people aren't just necessarily going to love us. Yep. And, and and I think that's important. I mean, that's what I take away from it is that a lot of artists just think, I'm just going to be great and people are just going to see it and they're just going to flock to me. It's like, no, you have to promote, 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 you know, find angles, get in people's heads, you know, right? I mean, do you agree? I, I do. And the other piece of this puzzle, I should say, is that I think fundamentally I'm a traveler and more than a musician, what I want to do is travel around the world and meet people. And it was a bonus when for a while I got to do that by telling people stories of other places that, you know, other places in the world. One of my most popular songs was a song about somebody that was somebody else's story that I'd heard while I was traveling. I'm also hyperactive. And so this whole thing fit me like a glove because I got to travel. I got to hang out with new people all the time. And I got to do all these sort of traveling, building a business kind of things that would engage my ADHD brain. And so what ultimately happened when my heart left it, um, the conductor that I did the Einstein's Dreams project with died day after he finished mastering the double CD. And I went ahead and put it out to market anyway, but I just couldn't do it without him. And I kind of hard to just let go. And so I realized that I was getting my needs met in other ways. Um, some of my approval needs were getting met, not necessarily on stage. My need for travel, I ended up getting hired by Kaiser full time to do international sales. And so now I travel to 30 countries a year doing some workshops and things, but mostly meeting with distributors. 
I think that was really what started making it all click for me is that I was getting the same needs met, even though I didn't look like a songwriter career. I mean, do you miss singing? I mean, are you getting paid more now? I mean, why would you stop singing? You say you were getting your needs met, but did you just get tired of, of performing? Yeah, my heart just wasn't in it. It wasn't, it just wasn't in, it wasn't in the performing and touring. And I don't really have a good answer as to why. But I still love playing. I mean, I still love writing and I play the guitar and I play the piano. I pound out Tom Waits and Billy Joel on the piano at home and Mercedes Sosa songs. And I mean, it's I love music. Neil Armstrong, both feet on the ground. You were Wilbur and Orville yelling madly as the plane touched down. Staring out at the ocean A child's telescope Pointed at the sky Give a mother Names her child Amelia Yearning to fly You are the dreamer people that don't have the same how can i say like you know sort of natural easy outgoing friendly uh, you know witty you know i mean you're very articulate you're a good speaker you're your public speaker you'll come up and just say hi i'm randall you'll you'll engage in it not everybody has that kind of personality so how would you encourage that person because they might say well i don't have the right personality to sell or to hustle i mean what would you say to that well that's probably true i mean if you feel like you don't have the personality to go hustle a lot of performers feel like they need an agent to go do the work for them because they can't really do the work the reality is you're not going to get one. And because you want to preserve those relationships for yourself, in most cases, rather than pay somebody else to maintain the relationships, it's not going to go well for you. I've got a colleague who, who does not enjoy people. Hmm. He tours as a songwriter and does not like people. Wow. And so he travels long distances for $50 coffee gigs. Wow. Because he doesn't really like people. You know, my agent, uh, Tiffany Goodman of Goodman Artists in Chicago, one of the things she said to me, she said, you know, artists that get booked over and over again, and I think she used Yo-Yo Ma as an example, said, you know, the agent will do a lot of the work in setting up the gig, but then it's really the artist's job when they go out and do the gig to really, um, you know, make friends with the yep. presenters. That's exactly right. Maybe the agent gets in the gig the first time, but then those artists really have to, you know, win. They need to win hearts and minds, you know, by being a good listener, by going out to dinner with people, by, you know, listening to the presenters, by meeting the fans, by, you might feel that that's like glorious, but it can be a lot of work. You know, people picking you up at the airport and talking your head off all the way to the hotel and then saying, let's go to dinner and meet my 12 closest friends. And then yep. that's good. Right. I yep. mean, that is, ex that is exactly right. I will never forget meeting Tuck and Patty. They were stunning and I was a nobody. <laughs> and they were stunning to me. 
and they gave me full attention, full eye contact, listened thoroughly. They took a CD that I gave them of a performer named Tim Penn. This was in Tokyo at the time. And they were fantastic. Tuck gave me his personal email, would love to be in touch. You know, and they meet tens of thousands of people. So it's about, you know, it's about every person that you meet sort of giving them respect and making them feel, you know, sort of important and and that you're listening to them. And that's a lot of work though, right? I mean, but it's, and that's the job. But what if somebody is quiet, you know, now you've, you've sort of answered the question and then that's cool. I mean, you've sort of, it sounded like you're saying, well, if you're not outgoing naturally and you are hesitant about getting on the phone and selling or about making appointments and, 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 and asking for an opportunity to work, it sounds like you're saying then just forget about it. And, you know, I mean, I, I wonder, couldn't those people find somehow a different way to sell? Like maybe they're going to sell in a softer style or they're going to use more email. They're going to win by organization or, or by social media. And those folks, and I tell you, a good, a good example of that is Marion Call, M-A-R-I-A-N-C-A-L-L. Marion, Marion works Twitter uh, like a baby Amanda Palmer, and she does it like a boss. And she is not the same kind of outgoing. She's quirky and funny and lives in Alaska and has managed to make a pretty good touring life for herself, working a lot of social media. And she's got rabid followers. So it sounds like you're saying maybe, okay, if you don't like people and you're not willing to connect with people in any way, and you really think that somebody's just going to do it for you, it's not going to happen. But if you have, you know, the desire and the willingness to, (laughs) to reach out to people, you know, if you find the right format that allows you to be authentically who you are, but still connect with people, it could work for you. Is that fair? Yep. Figuring out some way to connect. And John Mayer was working the door at Eddie's Attic in, in Atlanta and decided to, you know, hand everybody demo CDs. He gave out easily tens of thousands of demo CDs to everybody wow. who came in the door at Eddie's Attic. That's amazing. And and everybody noodled him. Don Conoseni, you know, was one of his guitar teachers, and everybody ribbed him for it being a Hendrix wannabe. So, you know, he he did it that way. So, but it's it's definitely having a focus on being a business person, I mean, having a plan, having a marketing strategy, having some kind of angle, some kind of hustle, looking for every angle and pushing it and pushing it, pushing it, right? I, you know, I think that's it until something pops. And then when something pops, take the ride. Um, Well, these are, I mean, these are amazing insights. I mean, you addressed why you sort of, why you stopped touring, what you're doing now. You know, it sounds like you sort of burn out for a while, but now you're doing, as you said, you're getting all your needs, needs met, but you're, you're traveling internationally as a, uh, a sales rep, you know, for a really respected, you know, manufacturer, music manufacturer, Kaiser, you probably know tons of people all over the world. Um, these are incredible insights. I, I mean, I really, really appreciate it. Is there anything else that you would say to sort of put a ribbon on all this? I mean, anything that I have maybe haven't asked you about that you feel like? The last, I think the last piece for me that sort of ties it all together is something that I heard Gloria Steinem say years ago at a lecture. And she was talking about excellence in literature being where form and content match, where you can't tell where the glass stops and the water starts. And so the idea with me living out of a van and traveling, or the idea with me becoming a performing songwriter who toured internationally was always about form and content. It was trying to do with my life what I am. So if I am a traveler at heart and a storyteller and a people person, then I'll find some way to go do that as a life and make a life out of what I am rather than trying to make a life out of something that I feel like is going to make money. So basically, I just went out, found a way to be me and then just be, you know, 
as good at that as I could. The idea that you're, you know, a lot of people, you've mentioned Seth Godin, but a lot of people do talk about being authentic as a business person, you know, that and, and on social media, in your newsletters, you know, sharing the real things about yourself, your flaws, your fears, your interests, your quirks, you, you know, your eccentricities. These are one of the things that endeared you to so many people that have endeared you to me over the years reading, you know, just your blogs and just feeling like I really see into this person. It's I see a human side and it's really compelling, you know, aside from your music, which is great, too, you know, but I think a lot of people struggle with that. I mean, people pay lip service to it. But for example, for me, for many years, uh, I've been doing this jazz violin thing and doing education and, and it was, and people have written about some of this, the stories in my past and, you know, related. It was only really recently when I sort of decided, okay, I'm going to open up about some of the things that happened in my, in my past on my brother's uh, podcast, because I always felt like, well, I have to sort of be, I'm not sure if I really want to tell everything about everything that I've gone through, or maybe I should, or maybe I shouldn't, or maybe I'll leave politics out of it, or, you know, there might be a backlash. Once I, just recently, I felt this sort of uh, catharsis about really opening up about those things, and it made me feel like I can now, now I can really be myself. And so I feel like I've just been going through this, <laughs> sort of this this kind of thing recently, and because I'd always wished you know, that I could be a little more authentic and, and honest about everything. But I felt like, well, maybe people aren't ready for that. But seeing examples like like yours and then hearing you talk about other people that do that, that really inspires me. And I hope that other artists out there are going to find, are going to look deep within themselves and say, like, who am I? And what what's that's really yep. real about me that yep. I can share that's with it. people? Do you, agree, do you agree with that? Absolutely. Okay. Man, thank you so much for this. And I know you're not even <laughs> selling anything or promoting anything. You're just doing this. You know, as you said to me offline, you said you just wanted to do this if you could help people. So uh, if anybody wants to reach out to Randall, like I said, he's not selling anything yep. or promoting anything, but he's offered to help. So go to uh, where is Randall dot com that's a where is randall r-a-n-d-a-l-l dot com or you can you can uh email randall at where is randall dot com yeah there's not much up on the website anymore just some travel stories but you know drop me an email if i can be helpful and uh thanks chris for the offer this is uh this was a fun interview well i appreciate it have a great one all right bye-bye Whoa, I don't know about you, but that was a lot of information for me. I love to hear not only from creative artists but people who are creative in making their business work because we know that to get out there with our music, we have to find a way to run that business. So I personally am really inspired by this episode. I'd love to ask you to leave a comment and let me know what was interesting to you, what was inspiring to you from this episode. And maybe there are some tricks that that you've used in your business that we could all benefit from. So leave some comments at the show notes page over at christianhouse.com. And we will be seeing you very soon. You now can find us on iTunes and on Stitcher. And if you're just trying to figure out the best way to find the podcast and share it with people, feel free to go over to christianhouse.com. And it's real easy to find not only this episode, but our first episode from last month and all the ones that will be coming up. So until the next time, stay passionate and stay creative. Mm-hmm.